Let's pray. Lord, it's my prayer that you would do what Paul proclaimed in the last chapter of 2 Timothy. That you would stand by me and strengthen me so that the message might be heard by all. And that it would be effective in their hearing. That you would strengthen us in your grace to fight for our sin, particularly in how we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's Holy and Perfect Word to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and verse 16. That's on page 975 in the Bible and the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, turn there and follow along as we read. If you don't have a Bible that you own, take that Bible home to be yours to keep. Galatians 5, 16. Anytime I'm near the coast and enjoying a day at the beach, one of the things that I like to do, as I'm sure many of you like to do, is to go walking on the beach. Growing up, my family would vacation at the beach every summer. And on most days, after enjoying some time in the water, or playing in the sand, or throwing the football around, uh, at some point, my dad would say, well, let's go for a walk. And we would secure our belongings, and we would just start walking and as a child, I didn't always get the appeal of it so much. In my mind, I had questions like, well, how long are we going to walk? And the answer is, well, I don't know. Or where are we going? It's nowhere in particular. You just walk. Or when are we going to turn back? Well, soon enough. And now as an adult, I realize you don't ask those type of questions. You don't worry about those type of questions when you're walking on the beach. You just enjoy the walk. And as you walk, at some point, for no good reason at all, for some subjective feeling that comes over your feet, you stop, and you turn around, and you walk back. <laughs> for a day at the beach, time doesn't matter. Destination's not in sight. Quickness is not a factor. You just walk. You just walk. In this series on fighting sin, I've used warfare language like fight, wrestle, stand, put on, put off, put to death. Because of the power that's available to you in Christ, because of the position of victory you have in him, because of the enemy that's in front of you and the flesh within you, those were the first three weeks because of these things, the Christian must fight, wrestle, stand, put on, put off, put to death, sin. But this week, I want to ask the question, how? How do you utilize the power of week one? How do you fight in the strength and position of victory of week two? How do you fight the enemy that's in front of you and the flesh within you in week three? How do you do this? And the answer to that question is not so much in how you fight, but how you walk. Look for yourself. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Just one verse. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you 
believer want to have success in your fight against sin, consider how you walk. Now we're parachuting into Galatians this morning. So briefly, the context of what's happening here is Paul's writing to a group of Christians. He's writing to a church. They're having a hard time understanding their freedom in Christ. Uh, They don't know how to think through these issues of being free in Christ and what about circumcision still and what are, how are we justified before God they're, they're wrestling through these things and each person of the membership are going to come to a position of freedom at a different point in their understanding they're different in their lives and as each member of the church begins to live in light of the freedom in Christ there's temptations within this church to be impatient with one another and so Paul reminds them in this letter to continue to love each other He warns them against devouring each other with hateful speech. He says, in fact, if you devour each other with hateful hateful speech, watch out that that you're going to consume one another from within. And as temptations and tempers are high in this church, Paul tells them how they can avoid giving in to the the desire to snap at fellow church members. He says, verse 16 of chapter 5, But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the, the desires of the flesh. That desire to sinfully cut Barnabas because he's a coward and a hypocrite when other Jews are around, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify that desire. That was their context. I want to consider in this sermon today how we can walk by the Spirit so that we don't gratify the desires of our flesh. This sermon is, I'm calling the hinge sermon of the series on fighting sin that I'm preaching. I call it the hinge sermon because everything turns on this sermon. It gives you the action forward. If week one was there's power available for you and week two was you're in a position of victory to fight and week three was here's the enemy who you're fighting, this sermon is how do you do it? What do you do? Let's put some action to our feet. And Paul tells us so clearly what to do, doesn't he? Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Doesn't that line sound hopeful? To be able to do something so that you don't give pleasure to those fleshly desires within you. You know, those desires that you hate and you constantly wrestle over. Okay, this is the last time. I am not doing it again. That ongoing battle with sin, the temptations that come. And doesn't it get tiring to continually punch back the advancement of Satan in the world and your flesh? I love the line in Come Thou Fount that sings, On that day when freed from sinning. Christians, do you feel that deep desire within you to be done with sin finally? You long for the day when the battle with sin will be finished. What Paul says here should make you hopeful right now. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Not maybe you won't, hopefully you won't. He says walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. That sounds hopeful. That's how you fight sin. If the question for this sermon is how do you do it, Paul's answer is quite clear. 
Walk by the Spirit. And now we can all go to lunch, right? That's how you do it. It's what you do. You say, it's good enough for me, preacher. What's the hold up? If you're a serious Bible reader, if you're serious about putting your sin to death, you know that there's more to consider because that only pushes the question down the line. How do you fight sin? Answer, walk by the Spirit. Well, now the question is, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit, isn't it? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? You say, I want that. I, I, I want to walk by the Spirit. If it says, if I walk by the Spirit, I will not gratify the desires of my flesh. Like, I want that. I, I don't want to give pleasure and satisfaction to these desires within me. I don't want to do them anymore. Now, how do I walk by the Spirit? And it feels like we're so close to something in our breakthrough and having a breakthrough with fighting sin. Because he tells us so clearly what to do. And yet, if we don't understand what it is, we're going to be close and yet so far away. It wasn't until 2015 that I learned how to tie a tie. My whole life, if I had to wear a tie, I just got my dad to tie it for me. Well, in 2015, my family moved to Maine, and now Dad's a thousand miles away. Well, being a pastor, uh, you should probably know how to tie a tie. <laughs> and so there I was in Maine. It was before a tie event, and I'd had no clue how to tie this tie. I had the basics. I had the tie, and I had a neck, right? So there it is. But I had no idea how to make this look like it's supposed to look without it looking like I just tied a knot around my throat. <laughs> I was so close and had all the basics that I needed, but I didn't know how to utilize them. And that's what this phrase feels like to me. Paul says, hey, if you want to stop sinning, if you want to fight back your temptations, if you want to have success in your fight against the sin, walk by the Spirit. And I'm like, how do you tie that? We have the basics, but it's critical to understand what's meant by them. This walking by the Spirit is common language for the Christian community, isn't it? If you've grown up in church, if you've been around church any amount of time, you've heard this language, walk by the Spirit. Hey, how you doing? I'm just trying to keep in step with the Spirit. And many times we stop there. It's a good religious phrase it's good biblical language but I wonder how many Christians are screaming inside what does that mean and do you realize how absurd it sounds to our non-Christian friends I was walked by the spirit and I mean they must think what sort of creepy stuff those Christians believe what does it mean to walk by the spirit I want to look first in our actual context of Galatians to figure out this question. We'll consider else in Scripture as well here. But notice first in our Scripture, chapter 5, verse 16, keep your Bible open there. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. And notice in verse 17, 
of an inner war Paul references. Look there. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. There's an inner war taking place between the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. Now here's the key part. For everyone who's trusting in Christ truly, the spirit of God dwells within you to supply power that you need for Christian living. But still, there's an old wrestling with your old fleshly desires. This is battle taking place. Paul says there's a war between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. That's why it's important to walk by the spirit, whatever it means, because if you don't walk by the spirit, your natural tendency is just to drift into your old fleshly ways. Now look at verse 18. Paul says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So catch this. Paul says first, walk by the Spirit. Now he says, be led by the Spirit. There's not a lot of details given here, but it does clue us in further onto what walking by the Spirit means. Namely, walking by the Spirit includes some sort of component of following the Spirit. If I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm having to follow his lead. And so we don't have all the pieces together, but we do know walking by the Spirit is following the Spirit's lead. Now look down at verse 25 to see what Paul says next about the Spirit. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now here Paul gives us two more references. Are you tracking with him? First, it's walk by the Spirit. Then he says, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, he gives us two. Live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, to be clear, these are not separate actions. Okay, this is, this is speaking of one reality for the believer. So that those who are walking by the Spirit are those who are being led by the Spirit. And those who are being led by the Spirit are those who are living by the Spirit. Those who are living by the Spirit are those who are keeping in step with the Spirit. It's, it's one reality for the Christian who has the Spirit of God dwelling within him, the Christian who has the Spirit of God is walking with the Spirit, following his lead, living in the Spirit, keeping in step with him. Now, still, we don't fully know what he means here yet by walk by the Spirit, but these other phrases do clue us in to what's involved. So if I'm being led by the Spirit, that involves some sort of submission to him. If I'm living by the Spirit, it indicates this is not just a one-time exercise, but it's ongoing. If I'm keeping in step with the Spirit, it shows that I'm not passive in this. There's an active role that I'm pursuing in God's grace. So we put these elements together just in the context of Galatians here. If we put all these things together, here's, how, here's what I would say walking by the Spirit. We see walking by the Spirit is living in such a way that you are actively submitting to the Spirit's leading. You're walking by the Spirit when you live in such a way that you actively submit to the Spirit's leading. Believers, would you say that characterizes your life? That you 
live in such a way that you're actively submitting to the Spirit's leading. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm guessing some of you are thinking, that doesn't help me at all. (laughs) That just sounds like preacher talk. I want to fight against my sin. I need to to live in a way that actively submits to the Spirit's leading. Like when you're thrown with a temptation to lust, that counsel by itself means nothing to you. When you're tempted to lust, theory of, I'm going to actively submit to the Spirit's leading, goes out the window. It feels uh, still a bit generic. I mean, it's more specific than just walk by the Spirit. I mean, following the Spirit's lead, actively submitting to His lead. That's more specific than walk by the Spirit. But it still feels somewhat theoretical. The moment that you're tempted to scream at your child in anger. Probably you don't have within your mind, and wait a second, I need to step back and I need to actively live in such a way that I'm submitting to the Spirit's leading. We want that to become a fabric of your life, certainly. But again, how do you do that? That just sounds like a more complicated way of saying what you said first. How do we go from theoretical knowledge of the truth to actually living in the truth? Because it's good biblical language. I Hopefully you followed the exegesis in Galatians, that short text there, that walking by the Spirit includes living in such a way that you're actively submitting to his lead. It's good biblical language. What does it look like in practice to actively submit to the Spirit's leading? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. This also was written by Paul. We still have tracks on the ground here from where we were here two weeks ago. Romans chapter 8. We were dealing then with the first four verses. I'll remind you quickly. In verse 1 we saw that condemnation was avoided. In verse 2 we saw that freedom was granted. In verse 3 we saw condemnation was redirected. In verse 4 we saw that the requirement has been fulfilled. These are all victory medals for the Christian that Christ has achieved for you. That in Christ you have avoided condemnation because it's been redirected upon him who's taken the punishment for your sin He's granted you freedom and he's fulfilled the law's requirement for you. These are victory medals that hang around the Christian's neck. That's the first four verses of Romans 8. I want to push it one verse farther today. Let's get a good running start back in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law... In other words, Christ has done all of this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, watch, who walk not according to the flesh, but, implied, walk according to the Spirit. Now there's the phrase again, right? Sounds familiar. Paul wrote it in Galatians. He writes it in Romans 8. Walking according to the Spirit. So I wonder if he'll give us more help in Romans 8 as to what he means by walking by the Spirit. Well, look at one verse further, verse 5. 
For those who live, now notice the shift is from walk to live, just like he did in Galatians. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now that helps, doesn't it? Maybe you're thinking, no, connect the dots for me. How does what he says in Romans 8, 5 help us in knowing something of what walking by the Spirit means? Paul says, to live according to the Spirit is to set one's mind on the things of the Spirit. This helps because Paul gives us something tangible now to hold on to. In other words, when he says, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, submit to his leading, all that might still feel kind of vague. How do you do that? But now Paul says living by the Spirit involves setting your mind on the things of the Spirit and you all know what it means to set your mind on something. Red balloon. You're all thinking of one. Black car. There you go again. Isn't it amazing the power I have right now over you? <laughs> Buffet lunch. Sorry about that one. See, phrases like walk by the Spirit, actively submit to the Spirit's leading, good biblical language, but they might feel a bit vague, a bit slippery, but you know what it means to set your mind on something. Paul says those who live by the Spirit, in other words, those who walk by the Spirit, do what? Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Which means... Walking by the Spirit involves a work that begins not in your feet, but in your mind. Walking by the Spirit involves a work that begins not in your feet, but in your mind. Christians, if you're going to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of your flesh, you must set your mind on the things of the Spirit. If you're going to be successful in your fight against sin, you must start in the mind. The problem is your mind is a battlefield. It's a problem because your flesh can give you tangible images to hold on to there as well. It's a problem because the world can present you all sorts of things to set your mind on as well. Brothers and sisters, never be surprised what thoughts run through your mind. Don't be caught off guard as though something is strange happening to you. I mean, how many people struggle mentally and think they're going absolutely crazy because they've never been taught that there's a spiritual battle taking place between their ears? Don't be surprised. It's a war zone. Remember the enemy from last week? A concoction of influence from Satan and the world and your flesh can produce all sorts of weapons used in the mind. We would not be surprised to see guns on a battlefield nor bombs in a war zone. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised at what takes place in your mind. Derek Thomas calls the mind the starting place in our war against sin. And as we strive to walk by the Spirit, in other words, when we strive to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, 
Some days it's going to feel like we're trying to walk on the beach with against hurricane-like winds. If you've walked on the beach in any amount of time, you know on an extremely windy day, you can tell when you're walking with the wind versus when you're walking against it. On the really windy days, it hurts when it blasts sand against your body and you're having to turn away from it. It's producing a resistance against you. And walking by the Spirit, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, feels like that at times. Like the resistance is strong. If you played sports at any serious level, then you know the game actually begins in your head. Whether if it's the quarterback reading the defense, it's the the hitter making an adjustment between pitches, whether it's the golfer who's stepping back, visualizing his shot before he swings the club. It starts in the mind. This is where war, your war against sin must start. And if you think that I'm overemphasizing the arena of your mind too much, just listen briefly to the emphasis that Scripture gives to this battleground. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things of the above. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. And Jesus himself, Matthew 22.37, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your mind. Why so much emphasis on the mind in Scripture, on thoughts and thinking? Because that's where the battle begins. It's where the battle rages between your ears and the real estate of your mind. If you want to know how to fight against sin, start with the, dis the, the disposition of your mind. Brothers and sisters, what are you setting your thoughts continually on? Some of you may be trying to kill sin while flooding your mind with the enemy's ammunition. Some of you may be trying to suffocate sin while leaving the back door open full of oxygen. Don't play with it. Even in the mind, give the devil no opportunity. Now all I've said up to this point is to show you that if you are not going to gratify the desires of your flesh, you need to walk by the Spirit. And a major aspect of walking by the Spirit is setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's all I've said so far. Walk by the Spirit, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. 
to simplify it, you could say fighting begins with thinking. Thinking on the right things of God. But the key question is what now, what does it look like to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Because if you can keep following that trail, you set your minds on the things of the Spirit, then in some essence you're walking according to the Spirit. If you can walk according to the Spirit, Paul says, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So, what does it mean to set your minds on the things of the Spirit? I have one more scripture for you to turn to. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I hope you see this series coming together. Just as we were in Romans 8 two weeks ago, we're back in this ground of Ephesians 6 from last week. Ephesians 6, this is the passage we were in. Paul tells the believer to put on the armor of God. And do you realize all the armor is defensive in nature? Helmet, breastplate, shoes, shield, all the armor except one piece. What piece? That's right, the sword. And do you remember what Paul says the sword is? Look at Ephesians 6 verse 17. Put on the armor of God, take up the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the, say it, spirit. You know the one that we walk by? The one we're led by? The one we live in? The one we keep in step with? Paul says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Believers, as you are protected by all the defensive armor of God, he puts one offensive weapon in your hand, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I like to think of it like this. The Christian swings the sword of the Spirit. The Christian swings the sword of the Spirit, which is, say, the Christian swings the sword of Scripture. That's how you fight sin. That's how you fight the enemy. That's what you set your mind on. Swing the sword of Scripture. This is exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness when he was being tempted, was it not? Satan put all things before his face. With every temptation, Jesus combated it with a direct Scripture to refute it. Swing the sword of Scripture. Paul says, set your minds on the things of the Spirit. And then he ties Scripture directly to the heart of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit are the things of the Word of God. Setting your mind on the things of the Spirit means setting your minds on the truths of Scripture. Now, Scripture is a deep sea, and there is more than one way to swing this sword. And we can talk about the statements of truth that it presents. We can swing the attributes of God. We can swing the testimonies that we see in Scripture. We can swing the tragedies of Scripture and what we learn from them. We can swing the sermons that we see preached in them. We can swing the prophecies that we see presented in them. There's lots of ways to use the Scripture as your sword against your sin. But I want to give you one specific way. the, so to speak, sword-swinging maneuver I want to teach you for this series concerns the promises of God found in Scripture. Specifically, I want to teach you to fight the battles of your mind with the promises of God. 
the song we sang, I think I realized it when we were singing a minute ago, Flee from Sin, how's it go? There's power in the name of Jesus to change helpless sinners just like me. There's power, goodness, I, I can't remember the words off the top of my hand, but near the end it says something like, um, so I'll flee from my sin to Christ, to Christ the Lord, put my faith in the promise of his word, right? Is that just church talk? Is there something we can really do that where the promise of God's word will fight back against our temptations? I want to show you how it is. Setting your mind on the things of the Spirit includes setting your mind specifically on the promises of God. So this is my plan. I want to teach you this way of fighting with promises. And then the next two weeks, I want to get really practical. And I want to look at common sin battles that we all face and look how the promises of God, specific promises of God, will help you in those common battles. But today I'm just going to show you the method. Fight the battles of your mind with the promises of God. First of all, notice in Scripture that God's promises are used like this. I'm not making this up. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says this, speaking of God, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, meaning God has given you everything you need for life and being godly in that life. He says He's given us these things through the knowledge of Him who called us according to us, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. He says, so that through them... You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world and because of sinful desire. We even see Jesus utilizing this in his own life to faithfully walk in the moment. Hebrews 12.2 says, We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, listen, who for the joy that was set before him, the promise before him, the joy before him, he endured the cross. you're not a Christian today, you never trusted in Christ, that's what Jesus did for you. He endured the cross because there was a joy to be had in seeing God glorified above all and rescuing a sinner like you and paying for your sins on the cross and giving you new life in his resurrection. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God gives his people his promises and one way you are to use them is to unleash those promises onto the battlefield of your mind. God's promises come galloping in with authority over the temptations in your mind. So I want to show you how the promises of God prove to be powerful. So I didn't always enjoy walking on the beach. As a child, as I mentioned, I didn't understand the simplistic joy of it. But on certain times when we walked on the beach, if my dad started walking in a certain direction, my interest was piqued because I knew in this one direction there was a pier. And I knew that if we walked in this direction, there was going to be the pier. And if we went to the pier, then I was going to get to walk out on the pier. And then if I walked on the pier, I could see people fishing. I might see a stingray or a shark. And I knew at the end of the pier, there was a snow cone station and gave me incentive to walk. The walk itself didn't really interest me. Yes, this illustration breaks down. Don't take it too far. 
as a child, the walk itself didn't really interest me. But if I could see the promise ahead of a snow cone, I was motivated to go. I knew I'd be walking back with a tiger blood snow cone in my hand. In this way, similar, God's promises fuel perseverance for the believer. And too many times, Christians try to fight their sin with only half of the coin. The negative side. You, you all know this side. You may think of your sin and you say, don't do that. Stop doing that. Don't think about that. Just stop, stop, stop. And so the believer tries hard to willpower his way against sin. Just don't do it, don't do it. I'm not going to do it. Don't think about it. And don't get me wrong, if you're a Christian, part of fighting sin, including yourself, including, includes telling yourself to stop. It includes telling yourself, don't. There's a discipline of God's grace to be trained in, but it's only one side of the coin. God's promises come as the other side of the coin. Brothers and sisters, listen. God's promises come to us so that we don't just stop doing something, but that we start treasuring something else. God's promises come so that we not only remove sin from life, but we replace it with something superior. So many of God's promises come to us with the promise of a snow cone attached. Just telling yourself, don't think about it, don't think about it, won't work, because you'll think about it. We must replace what you put down with a superior treasure. Fighting sin is about replacing a cheap toy with an invaluable treasure. So kids love opening presents at Christmas. We all love opening presents at Christmas. Who are we kidding? But kids love opening a toy especially, especially the new shiny toy. This year, two of my children had an option from one of their grandparents. They could get a toy or something else they wanted to open on Christmas morning, or they could open a ticket to a Need to Breathe concert that's going to be happening in May. You can see the smoke coming out of their ears as they weigh their options. You can get the new toy now and enjoy it now, or I can get a piece of paper. It's not all that fun on Christmas, but it's going to be much more fun in May. I'm going to enjoy it later. And two of my kids chose the latter. So when all their cousins were opening toys and enjoying them in the moment, two of my kids opened a ticket. Not very fun in the moment, but here's the thing. All the other cousins won't be going to the concert in May. See, too often in our fight against sin, all we say is, no to the toy now. I can't have the toy now. Without saying, there's something greater coming in May. There's something greater to replace it with. The promise of a more enjoyable, something more eternal, something more powerful. Listen, God's promises pack a superior punch. When you feel the, when you feel the pull of sin, fight back with the promises of God. So I, don't, I don't really want to go on the walk right now. 
there's a tiger blood snow cone ahead, little six-year-old. However old you are, there's a powerful promise ahead that helps fight your sin. What it looks like, I'm going to show you, hopefully, in very practical ways the next two sermons. But I want to close with one example of how this works with a promise of God and how you can fight the battles of your mind with the promise of God. It's a very personal one to me. Many people think it's silly, but it's serious. Which, by the way, never be ashamed to fight the battles of your mind that may appeal appear silly to everyone else but serious to you so last week I shared of my experience in my younger days of being terrified by public speaking I could not do it I know it's funny and ironic that I'm a pastor now and I do it every Sunday like yes like praise God for the work he's done but I want to tell you in the moment of my life then I could not do it and it was not funny Not to me, at least. I would shake violently, paralyzed in fear. I have stories. You can ask me. I'll share them later. And I knew at the heart of my problem was probably caring a little bit too much about what someone thinks of me and a failure to trust in the Lord. And here's what didn't work in my problem. What didn't work was I have to give a presentation in 11th grade history class on Thursday and I'm just going to tell myself, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I'm just going to do it this time and I'm going to get up there and I'm going to tell myself, don't be afraid and this time I'm not going to be afraid. That didn't work because I was afraid. And I just refused the assignment. I'll just take the zero instead. Here's what did help. Promises, two promises. God was so gracious in two promises. Acts 2.25 and Psalm 118.6. Acts 2.25 and Psalm 118.6. You don't have to look there. I'm going to reference them here. Acts 2.25. I had, it, I had it stapled on my bedroom wall above my light switch. And I'd see it every day. It says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Now, what's the promise? The Lord is before me, and the Lord is at my right hand. I don't have to be shaken. I can stand in front of this class and I'm not standing alone. I can stand with this paper in my right hand and know as I tremble that God is at my right hand with me. I don't have to be shaken. I can do this. Not because I'm strong, but because he's here. And I would fight in my mind over and over my fear over and over this class is not before me not ultimately this class is not before me the Lord is before me this trembling hand right now is not the main thing he's at my right hand that's the main thing I can do this in his strength and not be shaken now it wasn't easy and there's tons of stories I could tell you where it still felt like I was a failure 
But in the moment, he's before me and he's by me was so much more helpful than don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And when my focus did turn to the faces of the people, Psalm 18, Psalm 118.6 was my anchor. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What's the promise? Very similar to Acts 2.25. The Lord is on my side. So there's a reason there where you can say when, when Yahweh's on your side, there's no reason to fear. Why would I fear when Yahweh is standing with me? That's the promise. But for me, there was another promise in Psalm 118.6 that came at the end. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The promise is in the question and it's rhetorical. What can man do to me? And the the promise is in the answer. They can do nothing to you. (laughs) And I had to realize that in my mind. With Yahweh standing by, he's before me, he's by me, with a trembling hand, he's on my side, they can do nothing to me. You see how the specific promises were so much more powerful than the self-talk of just don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, because I was afraid. And I needed a promise more powerful than my fear. That's just one glimpse. That's just one example. You take a particular battle, match it with a particular promise, and watch how the power of the promise conquers the power of the fear, the power of the battle. There are specific powerful promises for your battle against lust and greed and envy and anger and pride and anxiety and fear. You name it, there is a punching promise that will help you conquer in the power of God's grace. So Christians, fight the battles of your mind with the specific promises of God. Walk by the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your minds on the Word of God, specifically promises of God. Let's pray. Oh Father, I stand as a living testimony here to say thank you for your faithfulness to me. Thank you for your great and precious promises that help us in our battles in our battles of fear and emotions but in our battles of sin as well. I pray, God, that you would give us grace in this room for those trusting in you to walk by your Spirit, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, our minds on the things of your Word. And in your grace, give us victory. In Jesus' name, amen.